0: I'm David Kern.
1: I'm Heidi White.
0: And I'm Sean Johnson. And you're listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader on which we are moving on to a new book. We are moving on to Anthony Trollope's The Warden. I guess technically it's Anthony, right? Sean is that uh, based on I was listening I've to the audiobook. Ways. I was, listening, you know, so, I was listening to the an yeah, audiobook and the and the English narrator is like Anthony. So actually it was like a little deeper. <laughs> uh, Anthony um and so you know it's gonna be hard for me to remember that but uh trollope it's part of his the chronicles of barsetshire series and uh it's one of his clerical books we'll get into all of that here in a minute first heidi how are you
1: i'm doing so great thanks for asking
0: are you is there snow on the ground still? Is it a negative 12 degrees? What's going on in Colorado? It oh, yeah.
1: is. We still have snow on the ground, but it is a little warmer. It's only 32 degrees today. So, oh, it's less hmm. like what it's here. It's warmed up quite a bit. Yeah.
0: It's like last night, uh, we were there's a church across the, the street from our house and they've got a field and they have lights over it. And so, my boy's begged me to go play football with them in the dark. <laughs> and I bundled up and when I was like 28 degrees and windy and it's dark out and I was telling the kids, you know, we were watching we were watching a football game, and it was like negative 13 degrees or something. And I said, "Yeah, that's it was almost 50 degrees colder than what it is right now." <laughs> and they were like, "Yeah, it's not cold right now." And I was like, "Oh, to be 12." And also, that's you're right. wearing gloves. You're wearing football gloves right now, and I am not. So anyway, uh, <laughs> I love that. Negative is 12 is cold. I think children just don't experience extreme temperature the same way that adults do. I think it's true, but I will yeah. say, it's cold here. Like it's this is one of the coldest weeks we've had in a long time, and its lows are well into the the low teens and things like that. It's cold
1: everywhere in this country. It is like (laughs) a cold snap.
0: But what I will say is that when it gets cold in the south, it is not the same as cold like up north where I come from. That is a cold that is is in your bones, you know, and it takes a certain kind of person to to have built you up are, a little bit of uh, to, uh yeah a little bit of thick skin. Yeah, that's right. Around your bones. Uh Sean, how's the <laughs> weather in Florida? Uh
2: it's pretty similar to what you're describing there. Uh no snow, but it's get uh it's cold. Yeah, it's cold. It's quite chilly, yeah. Yeah, snow yeah, would lows, be great. Lows in the teens. Yeah, we did get we got uh about 5 minutes of light flurries <laughs>
0: yesterday.
2: <laughs> oh wow. If I'm you squinted su- and looked at something dark in the background, you could spot a snowflake or two. Mm. And, uh, and everyone was outside oh, with their mouths open, their tongues yeah, stuck right. out trying yeah. to... It wasn't even enough for people to bother opening their mouths. Uh, yeah.
0: Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Five, five minutes of light flakes.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, um, the Southerners that had never seen snow before felt like may, maybe they had now.
0: Yeah. And, yeah. I, and I, didn't, I didn't burst that bubble for them. Yeah, you didn't. Want, are you talking about your children? Uh my children, we
2: lived in virginia for 2 oh, years. Oh yeah, your children which, are probably saw snow. Yeah, with yeah. with all but one of them. So they 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 know what it's really like. Yeah,
0: yeah. All right, well, uh speaking of children who know what <laughs> snow is like, uh <laughs> naturally, an english novel. Um we are talking about Anthony Trollope's The Warden. Uh this was a book that was published in 1855, and as i mentioned, it is the first book in his series called the Chronicles of Barsetshire which sounds to me like it should be a middle grade mystery series or a middle grade like <laughs> fantasy series but this is not that um for those of you who have not who, who've never read it before discovering that uh it's the book that's next is it even more famous than this one the "Barchester Towers Sean you're our resident trollop i don't think of oh, do you have read trollop right
1: no this is my first trollop yeah likewise this so is your Sean trollop.
0: you're yes. the sounds first trollop like you're the you're the trollop <laughs> The Trollope head in our group here, and uh, so you're going to have to guide us a little bit. What what can you tell us about this series in general, and and then I am going to ask you to give us a little bit of um some context and a little bit of a preview of what we're going to get with this book. Sure. Well, I have to
2: confess that though I do have a a great appreciation for Trollope, I haven't read all of the
0: Chronicles of Barsetshire. Okay. Uh, but well, then are you I, a real? Can you be a true Trollope head if you haven't read? No, a, I don't. If want you haven't read the last listening. Chronicle of Barset, how can you be <laughs> yeah, a Trollope head?
2: Yeah, the uh, the true yeah Trollopites Trollopers listening. I hope that you don't <laughs> think that I'm presuming here. Uh, but yeah, they are. Uh, it is a series of novels that began with the Warden, and uh, I, I think it sort of naturally grew into a series. Uh, Trollope didn't intend. Uh, to write a collection of books that would be taken as a unit, uh, but he found uh, that, as he sat down to write a later novel uh, actually there are a few he published mm-hmm. a few novels in between uh, the Warden and uh, Barchester Towers. He found that uh, he was drawn back to the setting of uh Barchester and Barsetshire, which are uh, sort of a fictionalized version of uh Salisbury and um, and so there are overlapping characters or references to the characters and events of other novels. But for the most part, they all stand relatively uh, alone or independently. And so there's not really even uh, a big concern about reading order necessarily, although publication order is the standard rule of thumb.
0: Well, we'll read the first one anyway, so. Yeah, right, so no problem there. So this is a novel about... Well, I guess our main character is, is Septimus Harding, who is a uh, widowed and an aging warden of Hiram's Hospital. And uh, one of the things that's confusing about this book to me is there's lots of terms that I'm not familiar with, and he is also a precentor of Barchester <laughs> Cathedral. And the word, the words like precentor, which are um, not ones that I see commonly... I think you need a hard st- C there, too. Not in the audio book. Oh, no, really? Oh, yeah, man. it's
1: pre-center in the audio book.
2: Okay, what's well, those, I guess those Brits pre, they, they, they do with stuff. So would it
0: be pre-kentor? Pre-can- it comes from the word cantor. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, pre, 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 yeah, okay, I guess, that, I, yeah, I mean, it's yeah, just been modernized yeah. over time. Yeah, the pre yeah. okay. That's one of those words that when you, you know, now that you say that, I should have seen that coming because when I was, the first little while, it took me a minute and I had to look the word up. Because you know, honestly, it didn't. It's not something I've been familiar with, and it it really kept showing up a lot. Yeah. Um, also, well, and- words like beadsman, yeah, um, which I thought uh, was disappointed to discover was not really that much related to the venerable. <laughs> right. um, I was really thinking maybe uh, beadsman was much <laughs> the like secret kind of, society like of bead, like a like venerable days. beadhead. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, it's not that either. It's just uh, someone Be- beadsman is from the old English, which means. Uh, that means to pray. So uh, pensioner, alderman, um, or whatever. Uh, Sean, do you want to give us the setup on this story? Just kind of give us the the, the framework mm-hmm. of what we're we're walking into here. Sure. Well, once upon a time, speaking of beadsmen,
2: there was a uh, well-meaning uh, church-going man named what was his first name? John. Hiram. Hiram. Uh, John Hiram. And uh, he left all of his property to the church uh, to provide a living for a dozen uh, poor or impoverished men who are no longer able to work. Uh, the Because the place was a cathedral town, uh, there had been uh, an you know, economy of trades and tradesmen that grew up in the area because it took a lot of time and a lot of laborers to construct a cathedral. Uh, and he wanted to create a kind of pension program for out of work laborers uh it the lands that he provided brought in a meager living that uh, kept these guys off the street and out of the grave at least you know temporarily <laughs> uh, <laughs> but over the years uh and through some uh prudent management by different church officials, uh, the the donation that Hiram made to the church became a very profitable little piece of land. And the the warden, uh, the man appointed to oversee this hospital or almshouse, uh, ended up really benefiting more than the beadsmen themselves because as the income from Hiram's lands increased, uh, the amount of money that went to the support of the 12 Beadsmen did not. But I kind of pause se- you for a second? <laughs> Are you doing this off the dome or did
0: you write this down? No, I, we just, we read the book, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I read the book, but I'll be honest, like even some of what you're saying here, it's kind of like, whoop. I don't know about you, Heidi. Some of these details, I kind of, the I kind of lost track of. of the of.
2: warden, <laughs> did increase, and there were some extenuating circumstances because the position of <laughs> warden and the office of the the precantor or the pre- precentor uh, ended up being linked where they once had not been, and so the increase in salary was thought of as a judicial compensation for the labors of uh, the liturgical labors of the precantor, not just uh, for his uh, work at the hospital, which was minimal but there are some modern-day social crusaders who have become aware of this fact and they really believe that the the poor beadsman... With uh, names like Bold. Yeah, right. Uh, and they really feel like the beadsman of Hiram's Hospital should be cut in on some of these uh, increased
0: revenues. And thus a lawsuit has been brought against the the church and against our... That's right. But the current warden... Our kindly warden.
2: Who is by no means a greedy man, uh, and yet who has not uh, managed or saved his money in any kind of prudent way, uh, stands to be quite adversely effective if this change is brought about. And he is the daughter, or he is the father of the young woman that Mr. Bold, this uh, reforming crusader, happens to be in love with.
0: And he has another daughter who's married to the archdeacon. The, the, <laughs> the bullish archdeacon. Dr. Grantley. Who is the son of the bishop? Right, talking about of, nepotism. It, man. it took it took a took me a, took me a minute to unravel all of this, uh, and I'm not going to lie. Wikipedia was helpful. Heidi um, <laughs> has Wikipedia been helpful for you as you uh, unraveled and uh, dwelled in Barsetshire?
1: You know, I have been listening to this book in the car as I drive. Oh, just, okay. Know,
2: say no more. Uh, say no
1: more. So, no. I have done absolutely no research whatsoever. <laughs> and I must say that the the unfolding story has unraveled for me much of the complexity of, of what I, what as David so eloquently and truly said, just kind of what went right over my head at the Ooh. beginning. Yeah. Um, and so I think if I had been reading it, like a couple of pages in, I would have stopped and I would have gone... Online, and I would have tried to put everything together, but because I didn't, I couldn't. You know, they frown upon doing those kinds of things whilst driving. Don't you have a Tesla? Can it <laughs> do the camera drive itself? <laughs> um, so uh, I've just had to let the story do the work, and it's done it. Like I get it now. Yeah, um, yeah. And just- and I think because the character development. Uh, happened so gradually, it feels a little bit like reading a newspaper article at first, and like a Mm. culture that I'm not even don't, I I can't orient myself to. Uh, But the story has done the work. Yes. So a few chapters in, I'm like, Oh, I know what's going on. And, and I appreciate the attention to detail at the top of the novel, because the all of those things, all of those little details that you just said that kind of went over my head originally, as I began the novel. They all matter because they all create the moral dilemma that that poor Septimus is in, right? Like they poor Mr. Harding is truly stuck and all of those kind of legal details that that at the beginning felt completely out of nowhere, they really do matter. In that no matter where he turns to try to like get out of this dilemma that he's in, there's really not a way out, um, at least yeah. on the legal front. And so it that is useful to have that. But I confess at the front, I'm like, I I don't care. Like, <laughs> I don't care about the terms of Mr. Hiram's will. <laughs> uh so the stories had to do a lot of work for me.
0: Yeah, yeah. The prologue at the beginning did feel a lot like a, you know. Like if someone was doing this novel now, they'd make it where there was a documentary or there was, yeah. you know, 60 Minutes was doing a story or an investigative reporter from the Atlantic was in town and they would frame <laughs> it that way, right? You'd bring a journalist into it or something like that, like they did uh, that Mr. Hear, Rogers like, movie.
1: Dramatizing it as you go, David. Like, yeah, you, you yeah. you'd get the, H- get the H- newspaper show, right up <laughs> what, right How up front. would I do yeah. it? Yeah.
0: Well, and so part of me was like, okay, there's, there's all this detail here and there's this setup. And in different hands... Are we going to get a murder mystery? <laughs> but we do not it get a has murder British mysteries.
1: murder mysteries on the brain. We <laughs> all, all do. Well,
0: always. Like, when do yeah. I write? Yeah. Um, yeah. That's going to be unavoidable this year. Yeah. It, it's been that way since I was like 12. But um, <laughs> so, uh, one thing I wanted to note is that they're actually, um, and, and okay, I, before I say what I'm about to say, this book is compared to and, and was mentioned in critical circles at the time in relation to Dickens' work. And there are some Dickensian allusions and some sim- similarities, such as, for example, people having names like Septimus Harding, Theophilus Grantly, John Bold, and uh, worst Alexander of all, Alexander
1: Haphazard.
0: Yeah, Abraham, Abraham, <laughs> Abraham. Haphazard. Yes. Yeah, yeah. right. And um, I was going to just say, and worst of all, Abraham Sorry. Haphazard. But it might be <laughs> best of all, and maybe it may, be, it may be, and also Tom Towers is another one. Your mileage yeah, for right. names Tom like Thomas. Abraham Haphazard. I was okay with John Bold. I kind of enjoyed that. Theophilus Grantley, kind of fun. Septimus Harding, eh, it's fun. When yeah. we got to Abraham Haphazard, I wrote negative things in the margins <laughs> of my book. Um, but there was um, a real uh, story in 1849 about a Reverend Henry Holloway, who was a church reformer and the vicar of St. Faith's Church in Winchester, into the finances of the well, who who investigated the finances of the Hospital of St. Cross in Winchester. Uh, and the income derived, and I'm reading from Wikipedia now at this point, derived by the institution's master, uh, Francis North, 6th Earl of Guilford. North's income, however, was conjectured to be in excess of 2,000 pounds a year, which is 271,000 pounds now. Uh, much Anyway, it's more than what's in the book. And uh, so there are very specific allusions that Trollope is writing about only a few years after this story happened. So yeah. um, I do wonder if you're reading it at the time that it came out, you are very familiar with these kinds of questions in a way that we, you know, we are not now um, oh, yeah, nowadays, I it's so. something like me too, or, you know, a, some, some kind of, although maybe that's too extreme. This is um, the me too stories would have been more. Or like,
2: or like you know, some of the weird, like we work or some, you know, yeah, dis- yeah, yeah, like, yeah. corporate, corporate uh, scandal or collapse or, yeah, and he's mentioning them by name. I mean, he, he expects that his readers are still very much concerned with these matters. Um,
0: Heidi, does the, the biggest question that I have for you, here at the beginning anyway, is, and I ask this question at the risk of possibly offending Sean, depending on your uh, response to it. How does the, does the setup, does the, does the plot, does the problem of the novel matter to you?
1: You mean, what are my stakes in the outcome yeah, of this like, story? Yeah, like, do the stakes yeah. do the
0: stakes grab you, or is that, or is the novel interesting in a different way? And Sean, I am going to ask you that next, yeah, but you've I'm read the, it a couple times, so I want to know how you how you read this novel
1: as a new reader and as a new, not just and not just like reading this novel for the first time, but reading Trollope for the first time. I did have some expectations going in. Uh, I knew he was a Victorian novelist. Um, I knew he was a moralist. I knew he was a realist. Um, And so I was expecting a very realistic novel with a really strong Victorian moral. And I feel like that's what we have. I think it's true. We do have that. And I think for me, as I've been reading, I've been noticing so much, diff, like the difference between uh, the way we might. Craft and enjoy a novel now, in the way the Victorians did. um, Sure, yeah. And the development of the novel as a form, Trollope, you know, he you know, I don't know what other term to use for this. Like he really like breaks the fourth wall all the time. is like talking to us all the time. He's giving us his opinions. He's telling yeah, well, us talk about the what narrator, to think, yeah. right? He's telling us what opinions to have. I don't actually love being told what opinions to have about a novel. I'd like to develop them on my own. I like to be trusted a little more by a novelist. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's not my favorite Style, I find myself wanting to kind of argue with him sometimes and say, well, maybe I think something different about this character. But then I always don't. He's always right. Um, (laughs) So he's always right about his own characters. And so I tend to come to the same conclusions. (laughs) And so I kind of have to like get used to that. What I do like about the novel, and you guys are not going to be surprised about this, and neither will any of our listeners, is I really love picture <laughs> shot glass for really. yeah. of duty and desire. And this is a novel that has not only duty and desire but competing duties and that yeah. that's the stakes of the novel, which duty matters more for Mr. Harding, for this community, for Mr. Bold, for Eleanor, um, that there's this overlap of the, uh, the personal and the ideological that are stacked on top of one another. And, um, and, and, and that is, creates all of the conflict of the novels of the of the novel within the characters and within the situation um and within the world that's being explored and and that i find very interesting um and i actually don't know how the novel ends and i'm about halfway through uh and so i the murder murder mystery yeah, I haven't yeah. figured out who's going to die yet. I I think I know who I want it to be, but who yeah. knows? it's like yeah. a brother's K. The murder doesn't happen <laughs> until halfway through, right? Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so in that sense, I'm I'm invested, but I think it's a slow build for a modern reader.
0: So, Sean, how do you read this book? Like, do I mean, having read it multiple times, do this? Do you do you care about the question at the core of the novel, like the stakes that he's setting up for us, plot wise? Um, I
2: because I have. Read it already. I can, I have a little bit of critical distance, maybe. Sure. Um, so I can, I can, I can see and sense that it's not immediately, uh, it's not immediate that you are gripped by what will be the more meaningful conflict. Uh, he tries, he lays breadcrumbs and he talks in the future tense in that first chapter, right? So that you'll, Stick with it, uh, and pretty soon he delivers on uh, this the conflict surrounding the character of Harding, uh, who you don't don't care about in the opening pages, but very soon you know come to uh, really have affection for and then you're then you're hooked uh, but I think that yeah given as as you already said, given when this novel is written and sort of how it fits into the history of the novel, uh, I think that the opening. Uh, the opening section is still pretty impressive for for what it is and when it is. It's a it's a pretty economical bit of exposition uh, that I think is still pretty enjoyable because of the narrative voice. Uh, but yeah, I wouldn't say that on a on a first read or even in rereads that uh, you encounter in those opening pages the thing that you're really going to care about. But if you were a contemporary reader, maybe that would be different uh, because again, this is something that is yeah there uh, may be a little more urgency
0: in the in the topic
2: yeah that is filling the newspapers uh and you know the the
0: pub talk and uh, these church reforms
2: and uh scandals and so forth
0: so in future episodes, I want to talk more about you know the the Dickens of it all, the notion of reformers and and um the social commentary at the heart of the novel and the way that Trollope was similar in some ways to Dickens, he grew up and he had difficult circumstances as a child and that led him to feel a certain way about the way the culture was going and the way it treated people who had less means and things like that. So I want to talk about that in the future, but I want to let more of the story unravel before we dig too deeply into that. Yeah, I'll, so even, sh-
2: I'll even say that um, I I finished today my brief essay on why you should read The Warden. And and it's I'll mostly re- now about... Now posted at Close Reads HQ. Yeah, that's right. By the time you hear this. Uh, but it's it's mostly about how Trollope is, I think, a refreshing alternative to dickens
1: i think so. and i love dickens He's so much more conservative than dickens
2: yeah yeah i love dickens yeah, but dickens but I think invented christmas this is you know more or less true or he was at least uh he was at least uh, prince albert's
0: hype man yeah there's yeah, no right, muppets
1: yeah. Warden. so
0: <laughs> yeah boy Not would that be that. boy would would that be a, an interesting experience <laughs> huh Who's, huh. Michael Kane as Septimus Harding and Grantley and Grantley and Bold as as I can see oh it. My word. <laughs> I can see it. We need Graham to do a little bit of uh well I was going to say a little bit of Photoshop but all you got to do is take the stills from the other one and just it's the same thing the same <laughs> world. Um okay, so there's a couple questions that I have that I, that I want to talk about here today and then we can we'll end there and then keep reading and go into some of the things on the specific issues that the book is raising the cultural issues. No, so here are a couple of things I want to talk about. i want to talk about the narrator, which Heidi already mentioned. Are we yeah, meant me to read the narrator on his, on its face, like matter of factly, or is there a degree of like dramatic irony that we're supposed to assume? Like, our, for example, Heidi mentioned he does like to tell us what to think. And most of the time he's been right so far. But are we supposed to read him as sort of like the ultimate, like as truly wise? Then Sean, you may need to tell us
2: tell us that a little I, bit. I have my own questions. I think the narrator is so fascinating. So yeah,
0: we should definitely talk All about we'll that. We'll talk talk about that in a minute. I also want to know if we feel the same way about the characters. So for exam exam for example, there's three key characters that I think are worth discussing right off the bat. They're the obvious ones. Bold Grantley Harding, uh, Sean. You just mentioned the idea that you have. You end up with a lot of respect and affection for Harding. I want to talk about that. Do we all agree that Grantley and these characters will evolve? Do we feel the same way about Grantley and his his uh, response to Bold? And do we feel the same way about Bold and his conviction and purpose? Um, Heidi, where do you want to start of all these of these of these topics?
1: Um, I.
0: Narrator or characters, basically. I think I
1: want to start with the narrator. Okay. Yeah.
0: Great. Fire away.
1: Okay. <laughs> um, I think I already said my say. He, or at least some of it, my opening say on yeah. the narrator. One, it's... Uh, the narrator is profoundly not modern. Right. Um, and so like I said, I I kind of have a little bit of resistance from, to being told what judgments to form from a narrator who seems to me to be making a point that's sufficient without the narrator's interjections. Um, One thing I really like about the narrator is the dry humor that it's it's a it seemed to me at first to be a very serious, very earnest book. And then whenever there is some humor, it's funny. Like it actually makes me chuckle a little bit. Um, he's very witty and satirical, and that's fun to read. Um but I th- think that I um react the way the best way for me to react from to the narrator is to kind of that I, so that I'm still enjoying the book is to step outside and look at it like a work of art, like an artifact from the Victorian era and interpret it based on the fact that that narrator is so different from what I'm used to and what I prefer. And that tends to take me out of the narrative. And so mm-hmm. I might need Sean to re me in there and mm-hmm. take it more at face value.
2: Sean, how, so how yeah, do you, want you to do that narrator? now? <laughs>
1: yeah, that's what I want. <laughs> so, Not you know, I- why should I, really, I like this
2: narrator? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I think that um, I have my own unsettled questions about the narrator. Mm-hmm. This time through, I was writing I all like over in the margin. I
1: questions. Yeah.
2: yeah. Uh, what questions about the tone. And so I'm really curious. I hadn't thought about it until the beginning of, of this conversation. Uh, I'm curious about the experience of listening to this book. Because there's so many places where I am not sure I know for certain what the narrator is up to. Uh, there's There are a lot of places where I think, well, there are a lot of places where I know Trollope is really good at uh, the kind of free indirect discourse that we talked a lot about when we read Persuasion
0: last year, uh, where he... And which we will probably talk about this summer at our Closer's retreat when we talk about Jane oh, Austen, Pride and Prejudice. That's right. Can't so. wait, uh,
2: man. This that Pride and Prejudice has, contains one of my favorite uh, examples of or uses of free indirect discourse, maybe in all, all English literature. So you better come to find out. Come what it find is. out what passages that yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, where, but where he uses what seems to be narrative. Um, uh indicative statements, but they are highly colored by the persona of a particular character. And so you you're not sure whether you ought to read them in the character's voice or as an expression of the character's opinion rather than the narrator's. And uh those are decisions that a, a reader of an audiobook would have to make in advance, right? Mm-hmm. Uh and so there's so many times where I feel like you could read a line in a number of ways. Uh I'd it, be, be curious to see uh, almost to listen to multiple audiobooks and see if they become, you know, multiple uh, treatments or interpretations in a certain way. Uh because I think there are a lot of times when he's actually doing something really sophisticated with his narrative voice.
0: This the narrator Oh, Heidi, you go ahead.
1: You you just I just was yourself. curious what if you could think of an example of that do you mean like Uh, multifaceted like I I mean multifaceted yeah Yeah. it means that he's really interpretations yeah and that he's that he's
2: not a uh, he's not a monolithic narrator uh, and that sometimes there's a little bit of ambiguity uh, about whether you're getting as you say an authoritative judgment that's mm-hmm. meant to, you know, echo the the author's own opinion, or uh, the judgment of a character that we're not meant to agree with. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, there's a there's a point at which uh, maybe it's it might actually be in a later chapter. But, uh, Doctor, I think it's Doctor Grantley. Mm-hmm. Oh no, it's John. It's John Bold who can't uh, thinks that it's really too bad that his sister can't agree with him and see his point of view. Uh, but that's said in the narrator's voice. Mm-hmm. Uh but like the, the, immediately before that he talks about John Bolt going off to uh uh like meditate on his own virtue or something, or something like that, right? Uh, so which makes you think he can't he can't be all the way for this guy in this moment and yet he's putting uh thoughts like that
0: into into yeah, this is why I have some questions about logic. But Heidi, go ahead and say what you were going to say.
1: Yeah i i like I like the free indirect discourse, um, and I think it happens when exactly, really often with what you're saying. When a character is expressing himself, um, and and it's very important that we as the readers know what the opinion of this character is. And what he's trying to do, especially with Bold and with Grantley, um, yeah. because they are the opposing poles of competing duty that are given to us in the novel, right? They are the right. stakes of the novel. There's poor Mr. Harding stuck in the middle, and then there's the social reformer on one side and the church and and the church conservative on the other. And um, and he is that essentially the sacrificial lamb for both of them, right? Mm-hmm. Um and uh and and then so we need to know their opinions i like free and direct discourse especially in british novels and especially in comedies of manner manners um and in in certain times of uh of society in which people can't say everything that they're thinking because they're conventional and the manners right, preclude yeah. them from being able to express themselves fully and so it's very right. useful to be behind their eyes um, and to see the difference between what they're holding inside and what they're allowed to say, so to speak, um, that's mannerly or appropriate to the situation. So it also happens with Eleanor. It also happens um, with other characters in this novel, and that is useful. Um, I I think his his ultimate conclusion seems very evident to me. The side that our narrator is on... Mm-hmm is clear. Yeah. And that bothers me. I feel like that's a dramatic mistake. Am hmm. I wrong?
2: What what side is
1: that? He is on he doesn't he does not but he believes bold is a fool. Um and and that the cause he's fighting for is is way overstepping and ends up hurting like, he doesn't believe, he's not a reformer. Yeah. <laughs> so he's like, in, in today's day and age, he's like anti-woke, right? Yeah. <laughs> um Because the social reformer that bold the narrator is, is. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he also doesn't really, he thinks that the archdeacon is too, um, is just too hardcore, right? He thinks he's yeah. unkind and he oversteps, although his cause is just and more right? And that seems so obvious to me, <laughs> um, that I I wish that he would let us come to that conclusion on our own. I wish he would let the story do the work.
2: See, I I wonder, I wonder if that isn't just for effect because I don't mm. I don't read I don't read Grantley's side as more uh, sympathetic. He seems mm. to be really, really explicit about the utter lack of charity. In sure. Grantly, yes. right? That the 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 benefit of real human beings does not come into his equation at all. Uh, it's the the dignity and the you know, offic- officiousness of of the yeah. the church. Yeah, a bully is a good uh, one. Yeah, and the political arm of the church, even yeah, he's a bully. Uh, and well, so it seems like he he denigrates both of those positions equally, hmm. uh, which then creates the. The, the tension and the conflict, because then you have Harding who's hmm. caught in between them both. Well, and you, we, we've only and, read- but you don't want to, you don't, you know that there, there's probably some truth uh, to the arguments on both sides as Harding himself admits like, yeah, well, maybe I shouldn't have all this, <laughs> all this money every year. Uh, but right. he's the guy you feel for caught between these, these two fellows who are, you know,
0: unlikable in their, in their, uh, their zeal. We've only read five chapters, but already you know we have one chapter where we've got bold speaking to the to the the, the guys who live at the with the beadsman, and then and then the next chapter we get Grantley doing that, and in both cases yeah. we're kind of left with that we leave both of those scenes feeling like great job, guys. That was that went well. Um, you both seem like you're really you know really uh, have everybody's you know best intentions in mind. Um what what's not clear though is exactly what the, the what the reasons are for both of these guys doing what what they're doing. And then you've yeah. Harding stuck in the middle. Um at least through five chapters that's my that's my take. But what I want to know is you know like so I think that the narrator first starts to come into focus in the second chapter which is called The Barchester Reformer. And where I first started to really think about it a lot is when it says there is living at Barchester a young man, a surgeon named John Bold, and I'm just gonna I'm gonna not gonna read the full sentences. I'm just gonna read what I underlined just to make it go a little faster here. Uh, a surgeon named John Bold, to him is owing the pestilent rebellious feeling which has shown itself in the hospital, and the renewal too of that disagreeable talk about Hiram's estates which is now again prevalent in Barchester. Nevertheless, Mister Harding and Mister Bold are acquainted with each other. Doctor Grantly, however, has a holy horror of the imp- impious demagogue. He considers that he is to be regarded as an enemy. As John Bold will occupy much of our attention, we must endeavor to explain who he is and why he takes the part of John Hiram's beadsman. So there we start to get this this like proximity between the narrator and the story, in the, very directly because it starts to talk about things in the present tense and it starts to refer to I and our and we, and the narrator seems to be someone who is part of this world in some way or another um or at least operates within that function but then later on we get scenes like the one between grantley and his his wife which is hilarious where they're arguing and then she just kind of like makes her statement rolls over as if to say this this argument is over and then he rolls over and like mutter, mutters under his breath until he <laughs> falls asleep like he like basically you know then you know nothing else comes of it so the question i have is how could the person this narrator who is a reporter of the scenes of the events locally also be present in the room in a moment like that and report on that as well so like there's a logic of that that i'm wondering and then if you if you if you if he's not worried about the logic of that then what is the role and purpose of this narrator like where does the narrator come from i realized that the notion of authorial like voice and point of view and all that has become, dare I say, more sophisticated, more complex in the 170 years since this book came out. <laughs> um, so it may be as simple as that. But the, the the reason that I think this is important is, and we can talk about that very specific logical com- question that I'm asking there if you want, Sean. But what I really want to know and why I think it's important to, to discuss the narrator is, why does Trollope choose this kind of narrator? And how would it be different if he did it a different way? Like if he just goes for indirect discourse or he just does first person or he makes it epistolary, or whatever, like you, these narrators, these writers are making a choice in how they uh, frame the point of view of the novel. And so why does he choose this particular framework? I think is, is important to really, to understand what Trollope's doing and how the book works. Um, How would it be different is another way of thinking about it if he chose something else Sean, what do you think about that? And you could you could you could use yeah. as an example any kind of any other kind of narrator to compare, if you wish. But or you could just answer the question more broadly. Yeah, uh, I think it would depend a lot on
2: what else he cho- what else he chose. Sure, uh, but I I think it's a good question. Although I think of um, well, I, we mentioned the Brothers K already. I think of the Brothers K, which is twenty. 30 years older than, or uh, younger than this novel.
0: 1878 uh, or something. Yeah,
2: um, Where Dostoevsky invents a narrator who lives in the town where all of the events took place and goes to some trouble to establish that fact. Uh, and uh, this this narrator behaves in a similar way at times, right? He uses the, he uses the plural first person pronoun. We, this, we, that,
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, many of us have often thought and is a little unclear whether he means, you know, the the good people of Barsetshire or English men or English speakers or whatever. Uh, but there is, there is some of that to give a kind of, uh, journalistic uh credence or like firsthand account uh ness to what he's saying uh but i also i also wonder how much the omniscient narrator is a choice at this point uh again to to I
1: mean, what
2: you've already said at this 1850 at, at this point in in is, in the history yeah. of the novel yeah uh if you mean, partly just that fall into just taken one for and and let it
0: let it ride off with you into the sunset of creativity I mean there aren't there aren't a lot of alternatives to
2: the to the omniscient third-person narrator at this point I mean the epistolary novel maybe and that would be very different I think because it would it would significantly limit our access to uh, the the intimate moments and the internal thoughts of some of these characters that we get in Trollope's approach Uh, but I think maybe then the best that I could do would say, I, I imagine he does this rather than something like that. Uh, because the, as we've already said that the drama is in competing duties and competing, maybe goods, <laughs> uh, qualified, qualified goods that are in competition with one another. And the more we know about the motives, uh, and also the self-understanding of, of their motives in each character, I think the, the more that tension is heightened. Because it would be really easy, it'd be much easier to villainize Grantley if you only viewed him from the outside. I don't like him very much, and as it is, uh, but I think it would be even easier to sort of flatten him and, uh, and make him the... The unambiguous villain of the story, almost. Uh, if you if you didn't have access to these kinds of moments that you're talking about here in chapter two,
0: the 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 one that I just read, or the yeah, ones? like
2: the okay. the the scenes with yeah. him, and he and his wife, mm-hmm. uh, or even on that same page, uh, we then get. One of those passages that I'm not sure about, Dr. Grantly is by no means a bad man. He's exactly the man which such an education as his was most likely to form. <laughs> is that a joke? Is that sincere? Is it true? is it uh, Is it
0: meant to wound? Is it just an objective reporting of fact? Well, what it does seem to be intended to do is be mildly disorienting, yeah, or at least to tell to to cause us to have to rethink whatever we thought we knew about him, right. That's right. Um, You can't. It's it's not allowing us to draw a firm conclusion on him yet. Heidi, what do you think about all this?
1: Yeah, I think another way of saying what you're saying, Sean, that I like and certainly works in Dostoevsky, for sure, is that the, the narrator becomes a character in the story with a stake in the outcome that is impacted by the events of the story. Um, and, and I think readers respond to that probably more unconsciously than consciously,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: um, in knowing that the narrator is part of the community, but the narrator is not telling his own story. He's telling somebody else's story through his own human lens, which then gives the narrator, I think, a, the ability to, to make judgments, um, that to your point, don't have to be shared by the other characters in the story. It gives them a bit of an ironic distance, but still a personal stake. And I think that that is a good thing about those kind of narrators. And yeah. it's a hard thing to pull off. Um, and, and another thing I think it does for me, that's good. That's positive is that it gives me an, the ability to immerse myself in a world that I'm not I can't personally relate to through the eyes of somebody who can without I have me having to be behind the eyes of somebody in the novel in a first-person way. Um, because when you have a first-person narrator, you see the world through that person's eyes. You can't help it. You're supposed to. And I think yep. Trollope doesn't want to do that. Um, and so I do think that this narrator conflates the free indirect discourse with his ability to do all the things that I'm saying. And I think it makes it a bit disorienting and confusing to me as a reader. Like, are you omniscient or are you not? Um, How do you know what they're thinking if you are a member of the community who's observing from the outside, but then if you do know what they're thinking, how can you be a member of the community who's (laughs) observing it? So it's self-contradictory. But I also think to David's point, that's where we're at. And I don't I I don't want to be like chronological snobbery, like we're so far past the mistake that <laughs> the past generation have made. You know, we all love old books and think in many ways they're better. Um, but I I I think that there's a bit of disequilibrium in what the author what our narrator can do and why he can do it.
0: Yeah. I mean the the notions of point of view are I mean, they are more we are as readers are more self-aware and more. Well, more aware in general of the possibilities, because more things have been done, and so we we can't help but read. I mean, it's like it'd be like it's like when you watch a movie from 1932, and we have there's a more sophisticated use of technology now. You can't help but look at that and be like, you know, when I when that person fell from that building in that Hitchcock <laughs> movie in 1932, it looks different than when it happened in Rear Window. And then when yeah. we watch Rear Window now, and we compare it to you know a movie that was made two years ago we would think it's there's a there's a higher level of uh, sophistication that makes it look more realistic now than then and it doesn't make it, it rewindle less of a movie but it, it it but it can be a little it can create a little bit of um, readerly dissonance which is something you, you either have to set aside or you have to ask is there a purpose? here with right. an old movie you just like that's technology we just set that yeah. aside we accept it that's part of the artifice like it just is what it is and that's part of the experience what i'm trying to figure out here is is it this is an old it is purely because it's an old book or is this a choice that was made that is asking us to think about the book in a specific way it's like is that it's asking us to speak a different a certain kind of language dramatic language go ahead heidi what are we gonna say
1: yeah i also I want to backtrack myself a little bit and say plenty of authors still make this same mistake so I can't Yeah, use
0: absolutely. Them. Like like Amor
1: <laughs> yeah. Towles just did that in um the Lincoln Highway. And, yeah, yeah, that's true. And and the entire book to me changed, right? Like that final scene if you haven't read it. It is it's a book worth reading. It's very good, but there is a there's a moment in which the entire narrative voice at the conclusion of the novel comes into question because there's something happening that the narrator can't possibly know, and at least and, the
0: narrator that we've been given so far. Yes, right. and
1: yeah. that is is, as you said, creates a readerly dissonance that, for me, takes me out of the novel. And I like the question you're asking, David, because what you're asking is: is there a way to put ourselves back into it? Is there a way to make it purposeful? Is there way to, is there a way to understand why this is meaningful? Um, and and I think that's a, that's a good question. Um, one thing I do really like about the narrative voice, I keep feeling like I need to throw these positive things in there because I don't mean to <laughs> undercut the whole novel. Like, sure, it, yeah, we're just trying to uh, dig in. Yeah, I i really like the even hand of the narrator, um, that the narrator seems to be doing what the novel is asking us to do. Like the moral tone of the novel um, seems to me to be... Um, to to be trying to bring opinionated people into a more understanding and benevolent cast of mind toward their fellow man coming from opposing viewpoints which right. is something that John Bold and Archdeacon Grantley refused to do and yeah no
2: one and- no one will talk to the people they have the disagreement with
1: Right. And they keep referring to some kind of public duty. Like Archie, <laughs> I have to defend the church. John Bolt, I have to defend the oppressed. And, and and they and the novelist, like the narrator and um and doctor and and Dr. Harding, Mr. Harding, they they keep reminding like they, they keep trying to make it a human question, not an ideological question. And and these two representations of these opposing duties will not do that. And I like how the narrator is invested enough in the community to keep inviting us to do that. He has this moral center that's provided by the narrator as well as the character. And, Mm -hmm. And to your point, Sean, what's complex sophisticated um interesting about it is when the narrator and mr harding are two different voices within the novel and so you're trying to find which one is the moral center right because it's clear you're supposed to um and mr harding is a little bit too like wishy-washy for me
2: right yeah he every every time he Like visibly, sometimes retreats from conflict or discomfort. You cringe, yeah.
1: Because sometimes I'm like, Oh, what a wonderful man! He's just like this Christ like figure (laughs) who is everything good, he's like a little too good. And then sometimes I'm like, Oh my gosh, come on, man! Right? Say something, stand up, be bold, and um. And I think the narrator and Mr. Harding keep kind of like swapping places to be that like moral center, and that's interesting to me. And I mm-hmm. think that's got to be intentional. Either that, or it's a flaw. And I don't think it's a flaw.
2: Yeah, I think the narrator. I think the narrator. Well, yeah, I think the narrator hovers around Harding because. Yeah. Uh, uh, Heidi, your point is is uh, I think spot on that the both Grantley and Bold are treating the problem as an ideological problem uh, and the result is that a man that they both care for is being crushed uh, in by their conflict and so even though he's not morally speaking he's not he's not in possession of all of the all of the virtues that uh, well yeah, the, that you might hope that a, a, a man would have uh, the narrator Continues to draw your attention back to him as the kind of the kind of dramatic center uh, because that's where the action is. Yeah, certainly. In I think it's suffering.
0: I think it's a nice structural touch too to actually have the chapter that's focused on him be sandwiched between <laughs> the chapters focused on these two guys. So chapter yeah. two is the Barchester reformer, and we're getting we really get to know Bold there, right? We get his backstory, and then chapter three, I think, is where we get. I think it's three where we get. Three's the Bishop of Barchester. Um, and then, but then chapter five is about is more about grantly, um so he just he's he is as you said, very sandwiched in between them. We don't have a lot of time left, and we can maybe we should save talking about these characters for next time when we can read a little bit more and make you know stronger judgments of or more you know defendable judgments of of these characters. Do you think that the the people who are listening to this podcast care about this conversation we're having?
1: Yes, I think I think course. that's right. <laughs> yeah, because I I think that the things that we are bringing up here are the things that um that w- that are obstacles for modern readers to get to the heart of a novel like this, and um and for me to say frankly, like that's been a little bit of a struggle for me too, and this is helpful for me um to like talk about it and so I hope that it's helpful mm-hmm. for our talk, listeners to, as well. To hash it out. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Let's let's do some final thoughts. Like what are we looking for moving forward? Um Heidi, uh, you are you gonna you want to say anything about duty and desire?
1: I mean I've yeah, <laughs> I am looking for um I am looking for and hoping for this is what I'm hoping for. I'm hoping for these ideological differences these opposing and competing claims of duty to be resolved in a human like in something human
0: like a more holistic
1: yeah instead of picking a side
0: yeah and maybe
1: that's why i think i was maybe that's what i'm sensing from Trollope, like and maybe wrongly is that he's kind of picked a side and and it's going to win and i i want it to be something more human than that
0: win like in the battle or win thematically
1: thematically okay yeah so i'm hoping for something more human more um more warm-hearted more generous um yeah and and i i think it will i think i think it's going to get there but that's what i'm hoping for and that's actually what i like about the victorian's and about the and about this era is that you really do they're they're always comic, right? Like unless you know, unless it's Hardy. But um, that there's like they let their characters suffer, but there's always some kind of like. Um, well, there's
0: Abraham Haphazard. There's
1: moral center, and I like that. It's refreshing.
0: He's in the yeah. offing. Yeah. yeah, one of the things that I want to know is is there any desire in this book amidst all of the duty, or is it maybe just that
1: there's bold and that- Eleanor. Right. right. True story.
0: And I, well, I also want to know, like, is it that is what we think is a sense of duty actually like uh, what they think is their duty? Is it actually disordered desire? Yeah,
1: I like, think that the novel
2: itself suggests a, a good bit of that, especially in bold. Uh, right. That he that he does go and contemplate his own virtue. The narrator tells us explicitly. Straight up virtue (laughs)
1: signaling. That did make me laugh out loud in the car. I was like, "Man, times have not changed. We are the people are
0: still people." Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. And then the question
1: under the sun.
0: Then the the real question for me about the duty aspect is: What is Harding's duty? Like, I I appreciate that he is he is try. He's asking that question too, right? Mm -hmm. He's like, "I could I could live with a, a lot less," you know. Like, he's not he's willing to be to do without, but he also doesn't know what does that do for the church? What does that do for the community? Like if I just give in and his, his questions of duty are more interesting to me mm-hmm. than yes. than, sure. the, than the than the other battle.
1: And that's the yeah. heart of the novel. That is the heart of the, all these other things. I'm not saying they're clutter, but I'm saying is they have to be removed out of the way to get to that. And that is what Trollope is exploring. Yeah, and, the battle and, is what and that se- is a really Sorry. interesting conversation.
0: Yeah. Sorry. It lagged. You froze there for a second for all me. Right. No, um, yeah, the, the battle has to be set up so that you can get to the heart of the person who's stuck in between it, or in between the two sides. Sean, exactly. what are you? What are you looking for? Like, and as someone who's read this book before, how do you recommend uh, that people was move forward? That was going
2: to be some version of my final thought is that the uh, the the question of what Harding's duty is seems like the most interesting question right now, uh, and because he is a man. Um, uh, he's he's not a type A man. <laughs> uh, the beta, no. the you can already sense yeah. the challenge and like the the painful labor that it's going to require. Uh, if he is going to not just do his duty, but even decide what it is. Yeah, and uh, I think that's that's what I'm I'm mm. here for in these next chapters.
0: Hey, Heidi, as a, in your professional opinion, could you do a quick Enneagram analysis of these guys? <laughs> What's Harding's Enneagram?
1: Uh, nine.
0: What's worse. Grantley's Enneagram?
1: Uh, probably a three or, or a one. No, he's a one. Um, and then Bold. Maybe they're just two competing ones who know their duty. But actually, yeah. hold on. I'm going to go back on that again and say Grantley is a three and John Bold is a one.
0: Yeah, did, and then ultimately, how, did you, it's you say about, I was a nine the other day?
1: No, I did not. What you are not? Oh, a good. Nine. Okay, yeah.
0: thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> no. What is that? What do you say about nines, there, Sean?
1: I mean, this poor, poor
0: Harding. He's you love him, but I don't want to be that guy. No. You know, not all nines are Harding, and also well, not go, well, yes. all nines are not Harding. Enough. Enough. Is maybe not the is healthiest the healthy version
1: and the unhealthy, right? The
0: healthy, that's right. Yeah. Yes, and, a, and, yeah. yeah, and ultimately, I was thinking the other day Sean's after 11. a conversation that we had. Uh, that in some ways, maybe ultimately like character work in literature. I mean, a lot of the pe- figures in the church have used the Enneagram to understand the soul, right? So sometimes character work in books is about characters either going from the healthy version of themselves to the unhealthy version of themselves or trying to work towards that's one of the
1: versa. other. That's right. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. Um
0: and so yeah. the Enneagrams are really actually, we don't have to be like, we know for certain that Hamlet is such and such number, but the as a, and Matt Bianca would probably hate this conversation, but the, <laughs> uh, um, as a framework of thinking about movement within a character, it's actually fairly interesting, much like it is helpful for me to understand what motivates my wife.
1: Right. Well, and I, <laughs> I mean, just to add to this, I know this is not the point of the conversation, but I think the reason why it's helpful is because the Enneagram is not about typing people based on their characteristics, like, Mm -hmm. because you're like this, you are a number, you're this box, right? Um, It's about going to core fears and motivations, right? And, Mm. and, and so that, and, and from that, like, wellspring from the, the contents of the heart, so is a man, right? From that motivation, that fear, that wound, whatever it is, um, or that joy comes then a set of desires and a set of fears and Mm. then those are so characteristically motivating to people that it's that i think that's where the fruitfulness of a conversation about the types comes from because you can say someone who is an enneagram one who is entire is motivated so much by the desire to um to make him or herself and the world better and to uh That and and cannot under and is afraid of that lack of perfection in himself and the the world, Mm. Um, and is continually then trying uh, either to either out of fear or desire, depending on how healthy they are, to make the world and himself better, which that's a very Christ like goal. That's a good thing in itself. And but it can be corrupted, right? Or it can be and it can decline. And that either glory or decline uh, is so motivating to a person and so motivated to a character and so core to who they are. Um, And I think that's what the usefulness of fruitfulness is. For me, it's not putting people in a box based on some kind of outward external characteristics, but going to the heart of a person. And that's always fruitful and I think always creates empathy and understanding.
0: And that's ultimately what the best books are about is the, the exactly. movement of those, of the character's souls. It's not just about the, the, the plot is it not is plots are fun, but they're in service of that movement. Right. Unless it's all that's there. And that's when they're not great novels. They might right. be fun to read, but they're not going to be remembered.
1: So me saying like, I think that doc, I think that um, Mr. Harding is a nine, like that, that core motivation for a nine is peace. Right? Like, yeah. I want the world to be She described literally
0: what... <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah.
1: And and that, and and just this, like, such a shrinking away from any kind of disruption of peace, like an utter rejection of the thing that disrupts peace, um, which makes their consciences very tender, um, but then it makes it difficult for a nine to be confrontational and to stand for something when they when they really need to because yeah. they're so motivated to bring peace which again is such a good thing but it can be it can also cause a decline and i think we see that in mr harding so clearly and and that's why it's useful i'm not i'm not trying to put him in a box but to say i see that in him and i see how it motivates all of his glorious actions and all of his you know, all of the ways that he also misses the opportunity to really do what he needs yeah. to do so far.
0: He's talking at the end of chapter five about how he's willing to compromise. So like he wants to try to find a compromise between these his son in law and his potential future son in law, and their two differing motives. And it says this compromise would not have been made from any prudential motive of saving what would yet remain. For Mr. Harding still felt little doubt, but he should be left for life in quiet possession of the good things he had if he chose to retain them. No, he would have done so from the sheer love of quiet, and from a horror of being made the subject of public talk. He had very often been moved to pity, to that inward weeping of the heart for others' woes. But none had he ever pitied more than the old lord, whose almost fabulous wealth, drawn from his church performance, had become the subject of so much opprobrium, of public scorn, that wretched clerical oxygenarian crisis, whom men would not allow to die in peace, whom all the world united to decry and abhor. Was he to suffer such a fate? Was his humble name to be bandied in men's mouths? And so on. As someone who's married to a nine, who really just wants to be um, surrounded, who has a sheer love of quiet, that really rang true. That's right. <laughs> um, anyway, anything else anybody wants to add? You can see that, that
2: an instant later, that desire for peace starts to open doors to more suffering and chaos right when he yeah, when he right. won't when he won't do the simple assertive action of telling his son-in-law no don't go talk to these men
0: <laughs> yeah yeah yeah
2: and it's such a bad it's such a bad decision to let grantly out there to talk to those
0: guys uh, yeah, yeah for real okay we are going to talk about chapters six through ten next week and we'll we'll bring up some of these other uh questions that got raised um it that we didn't get to um. Don't forget, we've got Kristen Lavern's daughter, Lavern's daughter, over on. The, I keep doing that. Over on the Close Foods HQ. Uh, why are you? oh We just
2: got so much. Yeah, oh, we got lots of stuff the, going on. Yeah, we got the daily poem,
0: here. which Sean has uh, uh, yeah. gone to to battle uh, to produce <laughs> every, daily. Um, we've got um, we've got events. We've got all kinds of stuff um, going on, and just yeah, we got a monthly mystery. Yeah, we got our mystery. We, our first episode on uh, strong poison is coming up soon. Dorothy Sayers novels and the lots of close reads of,
1: retreat.
0: Close a, reads retreat. Although by now, who knows? Maybe it's full. I
1: know, right? <laughs> yeah, if you want to spot, listeners.
0: That's true. By the time you're down. listening to this, yeah, the people. It, today's the 17th, and it opens on the 18th. And by the time people listen to this on the 20th or whatever it is, it may be full. So um, maybe raise a glass add, to, jump, to each
2: other if you made it.
0: Yeah, and then That's and then right. email me and get on the waitlist. <laughs> we're talking right. about Pride Prejudice. It's going to be get a great time. List. Um we're we're very excited about that. We do have other events coming up too. Um and we'll have more details on those as soon as we can get them to you. Um in a in the most responsible way. We don't want to promise too much too early. Um so, uh <laughs> we don't want to promise too much too early is like probably should just be our our, our like one of our slogans. Um with that Thanks to everyone who's been listening. Thanks thanks to Logan for for editing this episode and producing it and making uh, mastering it. He doesn't like when I say producing it because technically he's not the producer. He's the engineer. So thank you for engineering this episode, Logan. You are awesome. We appreciate you so much. And to everyone who supports the show, thank you as well. For Heidi White, for Sean Johnson, I'm David Kern. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading.